Welcome to Super Entrepreneurs Podcast. Today we have with us Rob Moore. How are you, Rob? Oh, good. Thank you, sir. That is amazing, my friend. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's an honor. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and I love that uh, show of yours, Disruptive Entrepreneur. You, you have a lot of energy about you, you know, like this is, I want to get into all these things uh, with you, but um, I want to ask like initially, like when you were in debt, right? And then you, in a few years, you became a millionaire. What is that one thing that you give credit to, to kind of achieve such, such growth? Like, was it mindset? What was it? I'm just curious to know. Uh, to get me started, I would say it was probably getting out of my own way of all my fears and blockages and judgments of others. Once I got my, out of my own way and I was moving forward, I would say it was a continual desire to learn and grow and try and be, do, be and do and give more tomorrow than I did today hungry to read books, listen to audiobooks, go on courses, listen to podcasts. I would say that was what kept me ascending. So, but I was 50,000 pounds in consumer debt, which I guess is about 75,000 US at the moment. And that was credit cards. It wasn't even including mortgage or, you know, because that's not the worst debt in the world. And it took me seven or eight years of going to um, sixth form and then going to university, college. And just, you know, it wasn't like all of a sudden overspent $70,000. It just exactly, you only have to spend $50, $100 a week more than you earn. And that, that compounds over a few years anyway. So I was pretty complacent. I would say I had a chip on my shoulder and it wasn't through being great. It was... I was always a bit envious of people who are successful. I always presumed that they screwed people over or they were greedy or they did illicit things to get their money. But I wanted to be successful and rich. So that was a weird relationship I had with people who were. I was definitely scared of failure, definitely didn't like any conflict or confrontation, all going back to childhood. So these, these are the things that I mean by my own blockages and internal quandaries and fears and always really feared judgment and ridicule. And so this stopped me from taking any kind of risks. And so I'd stay comfortable and, and sort of internally moan and complain and externally about people who did take those risks. But, you know, things changed on December the 15th, 2005. So that's amazing. And you, you'd notice that a lot of people have these blockages, right? Like, especially what's going on inside. Um, they only see success is when they clean up that area. And I'm so glad that you explained that because that is the, that is the formula. You know, you have to work from inside out first. Um, it's incredible, like amazing. And you've been on fire since. Like, it's just like, you know, like, like 17 books. That was the 17 books you wrote right from that time or before that? Did you start before or was it around that time that you started? Yeah, so I've just launched my 18th opportunity. Nice. <laughs> and I'm writing three as we speak. Yeah, I, no, they were all, 2008 was the first year I wrote a book called Property Investing Secrets. That's on like edition five or six. That's done well in that space. But I write sort of more general books now, start now, get perfect later. Money, I'm worth more life leverage, opportunity. Um, I'm writing one called recurring income. I'm writing one called increase your fees with ease. 
So yeah, 18 books in 13 years, I suppose. That's a bit more than average, but yeah. I don't know. I, I guess I'm making up for lost time because in my teens through to age 25, I mean, my dad raised me to be an entrepreneur. He got me working age six, which is probably illegal now, but it was fine back then. And I loved every minute of it restocking the shelves with all the drinks and filling the fridges and changing up the beer kegs. Cause it, you know, my dad had pubs emptying the fruit machines, you know, the slot machines, the pool tables uh, and counting all the money and bagging it up and counting the take from the night before I was doing that at age six through to probably age 11 and loved it and just wanted to be like my dad, an entrepreneur. But then I got stuck in the school system and, you know, getting good grades because I didn't want to look stupid choosing to go to university because I didn't want to look stupid. But it wasn't really what I wanted to do with my life, but I just sort of followed the tide of and the wind of what everyone was supposed to do in, in the circles that I was in. And I was always scared of being judged. So oh, I don't want people to think I'm thick. I don't want people to think I'm a dropout. So, yeah, I was making up for lost time, which is why what I've done in total, nearly 900 podcast episodes, obviously 18 books. I churn out at least... 32 pieces of content a week now. We repurpose that into 245 pieces a week. I'm making up for lost time. It's amazing. Because that is above average, you know, like that's a lot of, that's a lot of books. It's, and writing a book is like a full-time job, right? Like you have to have like a, like I'm, I can't even imagine like the kind of mindset you have to prepare for to continuously like write a book a year, for example, right? Like, what do you, what do you do? Do you kind of do, you do affirmations? Like, what do you, how do you get into that vibe to keep writing? Or is it a passion? Is it obsession? Like, what is it about books? Well, I have a love hate relationship with writing books. <laughs> yeah. I love the idea. I love starting and then I hate writing and then I love finishing. <laughs> so I just think it's in a way it's therapy for me. I have a very active mind, which I think most people do in areas they're really passionate about. I'm really passionate about it. I'm in and around entrepreneurship for hours a day in one way or another, interviews like this, creating podcasts, listening to podcasts, creating content, doing clubhouse rooms, conversations with peers, mentoring people, being mentored, yada, yada. So just, fly, you know, I suppose... If you listen to, if you're a musician and you listen to music all day and you hang around musicians, it's going to come through you. So I think it just comes through me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when I started this podcast, the best one, uh, the, the main, main thing was meeting people, learning from people, uh, observing what information they have and educating myself because it's so amazing to kind of pick on people's minds and people that have actually succeeded in different areas. You know, it just, it's incredible. The experience alone I know it's not something that, you know, it's a profitable thing, profitable, like a huge profitable thing to have a podcast. It's more about, uh, it's more about meeting and, and, and growing your network and learning and experimenting. And yeah, I, I genuinely love it. So you mentioned uh, mentoring. So for example, if an entrepreneur wanted to get your help to go to the next level, and I've seen that you mentioned, you know, multiple sources of income as one of the things that you teach entrepreneurs. How does that look like when it comes to mentorship? If someone wanted to get in touch with you, what would they expect? Well, look, I've been doing entrepreneurship for 15 years and, you know, made a good amount of money and got quite a lot of experience under my belt. So you'd be using a sledgehammer to crack a nut 
if you're just starting out and you want to hire me as your mentor because experienced uh, entrepreneur probably right yeah i mean there's different ways you can you can find someone that you think has good information let's say it's me and you can go and read all my books and, and you can listen to my podcast a disruptive entrepreneur and gobble up through a few hundred episodes and follow me on social media and consume my live videos and interviews and and you can, you can start that way, regardless if, if you don't have too much of a budget. And then what you can do is you can uh, choose someone you think has got the results you want in, in a way that you want, that you think might motivate, inspire, and um, make you accountable. Now, going back to your question with me, so I have masterminds and mentorships, and I'm in masterminds. So, for example, I have one called Inner Circle Mastermind Elite, but that's only available to people in the UK. It's sold out. It's application only. Most of the business owners in there are now millionaires. So anyone who's getting towards a millionaire or already one and wants to grow, Inner Circle Mastermind Elite is kind of a good place for them. But, of course, it's, you know, the fees are in line with that. Mm -hmm. Of course. I don't really do so much one-to-one anymore. I, you know, my, my fees are around about 50,000 US one-to-one -one mentoring with me. I probably have now less than 20 clients. I've had at 1.45 or 50, but I don't want to overcommit my time because I want to be focused on the clients that I've got. I have a branded marketing mastermind, which is a bit more at scale where we do monthly Zoom sessions and it's a global mastermind for influencers, creators, business owners, you know, want to improve their personal brand, their business brand and increase their marketing. And, and that's probably what about one eighth or even less of the fees working with me one-to-one. -one. Now I've had a lot of one-to-one -one mentors, but I really also like masterminds. Mm -hmm. I love it's them. Not, you're not just relying on one person mm -hmm. then there's 12 or 20. Way more powerful. Yeah. And you still get your one-to-one, -one, but you've just got to be really concise and clear with your questions to maximize the time because you get a bit less time. But then you get to hear everyone else's quandaries, challenges, problems, sessions, solutions, and mentoring. So, yeah, I, I limit. I mean, I do mentor some very wealthy people and some very successful people and some very big celebrities here in the UK. But I like to keep it to a manageable amount. So I almost want to disencourage people to reach out to me for mentoring unless they, you know, want to go from seven to eight figures or six to seven figures or whatever. Um, you know, or they really, you know, really want to align closely with me. Um, cause I'm very personal with my mentoring. Everyone gets my phone number. I'm, you know, they can contact me on WhatsApp whenever, and it's my mobile, not a second mobile. Um, because that, you know, my ment mentees reflect on me. Um, but nearly all, I mean, one lady, she got 25 properties in a year. One chap went from six to seven. He's almost at the eight figure revenue figure. Now Richard Firth, Fee Crossley was raising her kids and just, um, like I said, bought 25 properties. I've got, um, Anna Parker Naples who, she says she could hardly even afford to join my program. And now she does multiple six figures in her business. She's got podcast agency. So I suppose when you work closely one-to-one -one with people, you know, you can really overcome your challenges and barriers and there's hardcore commitment, but there's some energy about a mastermind. So probably the, the starter point, if you want to be in a mastermind with me is brand and marketing mastermind. Um, so you could just Google Rob Moore brand and marketing mastermind. You could find it, but I'm a big fan of masterminds and I'm in some myself as a, a peer and a mentee because I think it's vital. Mm -hmm. Both ways, right? Like you, you should be getting, you should be a mentee. You should be a, me a mentor. If you're a mentor, you have to be a mentee. 
you know there's no way to do it alone yeah. it's the it's the secret of secret of the 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 business world is like hiring getting into masterminds you know the right ones uh, because there's some that are 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 not uh, going to get you where you need to go um and the the main qualities i see in you is are because of the fact that you are good in branding right you're good in business and the ingredient the wealth building ingredient you know properties is that mix all together creates a very desirable mentor um you know because when you're gaining wealth or you're doing good in business investing it into properties is the way to go you know so that mix is very attractive you know what i mean so i just want to talk about it if anybody's listening that I'm sure is one of the most common desires of people when they go into business. Oh, I'm going to go into business and then I'll start buying properties. So definitely it's a, it's a good place to, to, to go. Um, how about your, your public speaking? Did you have a mentor for that as well? Because you got two time world record, you know, like. Yes. I um, was so scared of public speaking. I tried one speech and hated it and stood right in the corner and literally wrote out notes word for word. Uh, and just looked at them. And yeah, I, uh, I went on a public speaking course in Australia called Platform and Presentation Skills with Chris Howard. And that was my first speaking course. And I've had other speaking mentors since and continued to do public speaking and refine my skills. And yeah, I broke the world record for the longest public speech a few years ago. And then I did the team speech world record a year after that. And I've done thousands of speaking gigs. I mean, if you include all the Facebook lives and podcast interviews and everything else, it's many thousands. And I love it. It's a great way to earn a living, to inspire people, educate people, get your rewards, both emotionally and financially. It's a great passion turned into a profession. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely passion driven. Um, so I, I noticed that you you're, you mentioned online that you have about online, or I got it from somewhere, but 840 plus rental units and growing strong. So are these those rental properties you buy, and then the you know the the I don't know how it is in UK, or I'm not even sure if they're all in UK. Can you talk more about those rental units? Yeah. So now we have 990 myself and my business partner. In three property companies we do, we have a a holding ownership company, a development company, and a management company. So they're either myself or my business partners or our company manage, um, or we're in some joint venture partnerships. And they started with single family, um, I guess you'd call them duplexes or studio flats or small two-bed houses, what we call terrace in the UK, if rows of small houses buying up those. And then we got to the bigger multi-lets, five rooms, six rooms, eight rooms. Then we did conversions into multi-lets. We converted police stations into and offices into flats. And we converted um, pubs and clubs, nightclubs into multi-let, sort of 32, 36 unit. And then we got into bigger developments. We've just done a, hundred, a 99 unit conversion into flats and rooms. Um, so we just sort of moved up the ladder the whole time, stayed local, all just outside London where we're based, you know, because we know it, we can control it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you get, you get to sort of double or triple dip when you, when you buy the property under value, you, you, you have it in your ownership company, you develop it and add value, and then you give it to your management company to manage. You sort of triple dip there. Um, but, yeah, real estate is the backbone of everything I've done, and it's what I started in in 2005. 
Yeah, I, I, I signed for a couple yesterday, actually, in Detroit, because I heard Detroit is doing, um, it's is, is really good. It's really uh, good property, good values, uh, good rental income as well. Um, but yeah, it's very, I love property stuff. It's amazing. So do you, that is, it's, it's amazing that you find properties like nightclubs and buildings, and then you convert them into spaces like individual units, like that must increase the value of it as well. Like tremendously, like at a large level, right? Yeah. I mean, you either get growth through appreciation or you get growth through, buying under value or you get growth through changing the use. Then yes. the, three, the three ways you get equity or profit, buy low, sell high or buy low, rent high, or you know, changing the use from empty shops into flats or empty shops into full shops. Yeah, that, that's a great way. So conversion where we are, the planning rules, they were very relaxed after the last recession. They're just getting a bit tighter now, but we've just got a couple of big buildings through planning. But, you know, the more relaxed the planning is, the easier it is to guarantee that you can change the use properly. Yeah. So it's funny that they, they allow like commercial units to be converted into because I know in Canada here, like if it's a plaza, like a unit, you, they won't allow you to convert it to an apartment. But I guess in UK, like you're, you're if you can go to through planning and, and ask for that change within stores, yeah. have a unit. A lot of it depends on the financial climate on the high street. So, you know, in, in England, we have the high street, the main area of the town or city. And after the recession, there were just loads of empty units. So, you know, the local boroughs and councils and planners aren't stupid. If they, they don't relax the planning rules and let you convert into residential or change the use of it to get the uplift, the town's going to be like, you know, tumbleweed, like one of those old Western towns. <laughs> yeah. So we've just seized on that opportunity when planning laws have changed or relaxed. And it actually varies city to city. In, you know, if, if it's an old red brick university type city like Cambridge or Oxford, the planning will be much more stringent. In some areas, you don't even need planning. You just need what's called permitted development, where you can pretty much do it under a looser regulation. But the change of use is where you get big uplift. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Like, like I said, we just did one. It's a shop on the ground floor, had two, three floors above, no, two floors above, and we were able to develop the two floors above, add one floor at the front, two floors at the back in this kind of quadrangle, and take it from one commercial property into commercial ground floor, hundred flats and rooms around the, the rest of the space. That's incredible. Yeah. So we took it, we bought it for, let's try and convert it into dollars. US, probably about $5 million. And it's probably worth nearly $30 million Beautiful. now. Amazing. With probably a $12 million spend, but we'll hold the whole thing and we'll probably get, I don't know what the, because we're holding them all and not selling them. Um, but you know, maybe maybe between half six hundred, maybe pushing a million dollars a year net gross income, something like that. Yeah, it's good to yeah, keep I, it. We're still finishing it. I got to look at the numbers properly. I have to speak to my business partner. I like to spit out numbers and get them wrong. But, <laughs> That's uh, all right. Yeah, def there's definitely one point four million US 
net income in uh, the, the recent properties we've purchased. That's great. And do you have a fund as well where people can invest into a fund and buying purchases? Is it just you and your partner? Yeah, just us. Oh, nice. I mean, sometimes we'll, we'll, bring a, we'll bring one third party partner in uh, and he'll finance it and we'll manage it. But no, fund's not really for us. You know, my friend Grant, Grant Cardone, he does it. But um, there's a lot of rules and regulations around that. And, you know, we, we just ultimately want to own them ourselves. It's just not really our world. Yeah. I think you've got to know your limitations. Yeah. You know, we, we, I mean, we're the, we have the biggest property training company in the UK. So we do the property training, but we don't do the, you know, the pooled investments. I understand. So a property training, uh, what does this mean? Like training in investing or? Mentoring. Yeah. Mentoring. Okay, good. Teaching people how to be property investors, how to invest locally, how to essentially do what we've done over the last 15 years. Beautiful. That's awesome. Are you guys going to expand outside of UK, like globally in the States, Canada, stuff like that? Not ownership. No, we'll keep buying locally. Like I go for a daily walk. It takes me about seven or eight minutes and I've probably walked past 175 of our units. Oh, so, so I know what's really going on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, like I walked past one a few weeks ago and um, some of the plant pots at the front had been knocked over and it was just looking a bit there. So I just messaged our um, manager and said, just need sorting out the front job done. You can manage it. Imagine if that was in Florida. Yeah. It's different you know? for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I always recommend people invest locally. I just think that um, you've got more control You'll sweat more profit out of it. You'll know the planning regulations. You'll know how to get them on the market quick, how to get the maximum rent, et cetera. You'll, you'll get the tradesmen, the builders, the project managers, all of that. Everything under your nose. Yeah. So, and also I read that you are part of an advisory board for some great companies. Um, are you allowed to share one of those country, uh, companies? Mm, I don't know where you read that. Um, I've definitely advise entrepreneurs, but I'm not. Oh like, yeah. Okay. I got it I'm for summer. Like a board member of, I'm not like a board member of um, Tesla or anything. Oh, no. like that. <laughs> yeah. That's what I thought I was going to hear. Right. <laughs> yeah. okay. No, there's just some entrepreneurs who've been very successful and, you know, they've got a, a seven or an eight figure business. And, you know, I've, um, I've either been sort of like a mentor or I guess a non-exec role. Um, I keep that quite loose. I know some people do that and get paid for that almost like a chairman or non-exec director role, but I've got my own companies to build, but you know, I, I support a lot of wealthy and quite famous people in the UK in, in growing their business. But a lot of it is, you know, on quite a non-contractual level. And, and sometimes I just help people cause I want to help people. So oh, that's awesome. That's good quality to have. and um i I read somewhere you were saying it says that you know you change the way people think about business that i was intrigued when i read that and i was just wondering what does that look like Uh, we have a lot of ideas now already by you know speaking to each other today but what what how do you help entrepreneurs with this to think about business like change that way of thinking because there's a traditional there's a generalist way right like how do you help Well, I do like to get people to think about traditional wisdom and common sense and then think about the opposite of that, because usually common sense isn't common. Um, So, you know, a lot of people say things like, oh, well, if you want to get something done properly, do it yourself. 
No, get someone who's a specialist at it, who's better than you and get them to do it for you. 100%. A lot of people say, oh, well, when you hire someone, you need to have really done their role first before you can hire. No, I've never coded. I've never done design. I've never been an FD. Um, you know, there's so many roles I've never done. And if I had to learn them all before I hired out, then I'd have to be doing 20 years of study every time I want to hire someone. A lot of people say you've got to trust your intuition. I say, no, you've got to gain experience and do due diligence and research. And sure, once you've done all your diligence and research and then you get a feel, you can go with that. But a lot of people are using intuition to make important decisions and they've done no research um, or diligence or background checks. Um, or they're just using their intuition as an excuse to make very flippant, loose, fast and lazy decisions. So there's another one. Um, a lot of people say, and this is, again, quite common, you know, uh, hire on attitude, not skills. No, I'd rather have a really great coder than a really happy coder who's not a very good coder. Do you want, the, do you want a coder who's got a good, happy attitude or do you want a coder who's an absolute genius at coding? And often when you find that hiring real talent of skills and genius often they have quirks and isms and weirdnesses and they can be somewhat abrasive and obnoxious my best my best salesperson ever was rubbish at admin and overclaimed on his commissions would i have him back in a heartbeat my best property acquirer ever we used to go awol for hours at a time and tried to sleep with most of the women in my company but would i have him back at a heartbeat because he was the best property acquirer i'd ever met so, and I actually think you can teach attitude because attitude is culture. So there's a lot of myths that the sort of the prevailing common sense. And I wonder who's actually sharing this stuff. Have they actually hired people? Have they? Yeah. So, you know, these are the kind of things I like to teach people or at the very least, I want to show them the other side to the one sidedness that they've been shown. But if it is common sense and common, it's probably not wisdom and experienced on the trenches. Um, yeah. Great. Yeah, it's awesome. And uh, one point about intuition, another problem with intuition is people are confusing it as well, because it could be their living experiences that they have, that they feel as intuition as a foggy mind, and yeah. they make a decision thinking it's intuition, it could be just their experiences that might not provide those results. So it's very tricky uh, intuition business. And we all have biases, don't we? So for example, I lean towards trusting people too easily. And my business partner leans towards being too skeptical and trusting people not enough. So we're always going to have that filter. So I'm going to always go into a new relationship, trusting a bit too much. And Mark's always going to go at my business partner. He's always going to go into a relationship, trusting not enough in terms of, you know, the extremes versus the mean, the average. So we have to, we have to know our own biases and unconscious filters but yeah a lot of people are like oh no just trust your intuition everything will be fine <laughs> yeah. uh, it could be foggy depending on what's going on in their mind right so um yeah. we always i we always like our like to ask our guest what their inner superpower is that got them to this point in their life Oh, my life. I don't think I've got any superpower. Something inside. It could be nothing, no right or wrong answer. Just something that you feel that, you know, that was a determination. Something inside of you that, you know, helped with getting you this far. And you have come a I long think, way. I think I'm good at making quick decisions and backing myself. I mm. think... You know, there's things I perceive, there's things I perceive, like, I think I'm quite self-aware. And then I realized, bloody hell, that was not very self-aware. <laughs> 
Um, I think oh, I can really manage my emotions and then just every now and again, I just lose my shit or whatever. Um, so I couldn't say there's superpowers. I'm working on them all the time, but I make quick decisions and I back myself once I've made them and I don't second guess myself and I don't doubt them. And sometimes I make decisions that are too quick without in, in, enough planning. But if I, were to, if, if I were to like confidently say to you uh, uh, something I think I'm good at, that would be it. Mm-hmm. That's good. Because if you look at making quick decisions, if you kind of backtrack it, it comes from faith, right? Like you have incredible faith in yourself that makes you make those decisions and make the best out of the decision. Most successful people, if you ask them, that's the number one thing they say is they, they make quick decisions, you know, because they have their faith on them, on their skills and what they can produce. So that's amazing. Amazing answer. Thank you so much. So another one question I wanted to ask you, do you have a morning ritual or afternoon ritual, whatever time you wake up, when you first wake up, do you have some kind of a, a ritual to start your day? So I have a very um, set routine. I wrote a book on it called Routine Equals Results um, because I think it's really important. I think that routine equals results and discipline equals freedom. And if you don't plot your high priorities in your diary, someone else will have their high priorities and they'll get you doing them. Um, So I get up at 5.30 a.m. pretty much every morning. I get my regular same coffee at 6 a.m. I drive to go and get it and I put um, audio books on. I'm currently re-listening to Sapiens because I find that interesting. Um, and then I come back and I do content and strategy work for the first one and a half hours. Then I do a bit of time on Clubhouse. Then I do a, a Facebook Live and some content and write a blog. Um, so my, that's my morning routine. I sort of move my exercise around the day. Uh, sometimes I've gone to the gym really early. Other times at 9 a.m. I'm actually going to go straight after this to the gym um, just because, you know, like I find that when I get an ideal routine, something changes either in me or the world or whatever. So, you know, I think you've got to get this good routine, know your ebbs and flows, highs and lows. I test everything in my routine. I test when I go to bed, when I get up, the coffee and the food and when I place things in the diary. Um, and I probably change them probably three or four times a year just to have maximum productivity, efficiency, make sure I still love what I do and do what I love, and not waste any time. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not really into meditation. I'm not doing cold showers. There's lots of these things that people do, and I've tried a bit. Uh, and, and maybe I'll get on them a bit more, but great meditation for me is having an interesting conversation like this or going and hitting the gym or listening. You know, I've, I've, I've got like a music room here and, and a studio, and listening to vinyl is one of my great meditations. Yeah, I always say meditation is what feels good to you. Meditation could be speaking to your pet. For 10 minutes you know meditation could be walking in the wilderness right like it's it depends on what feels good and that's great thank you so much one last question before i let you go what are the three things you're grateful for well i'm grateful for, i'm grateful for being alive love that I'm one great, i'm grateful for this present moment so i'm grateful to you for wanting to interview me and have this conversation and the kind things you've done for me thank you thank you because I think it's really important to be grateful for the present moment. It's very easy to be nostalgic about the past or looking forward to the future. But I think being grateful for the present moment. So I'm grateful to be alive. I'm grateful for the present moment. And I'm grateful for all the people in my life, the, the lovers and haters, the fans and the critics, the family and the friends. So all they're the them. three things. <laughs> That's great. 
Man, Rob, it was, it was amazing. Thank you so much for coming on our show, my friend. Keep in touch. I'm going to, you know, add you to social. And uh, definitely what you're doing, I'm, I'm a fan of. And I, I like your your energy about business, about investing. All those things are very, very next level in my books. And I respect you. And I wish you tremendous growth and, and the impact that you're giving people. I wish that grows further and further and you can help and impact more and more people. And I just wanted to say that. Thank you. Thank you.